Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I'm your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. In last week's episode, we took a look at the importance of executive coaching for lawyers from the perspective of an executive coach who practiced law for many years, both in the private sector as well as for a nonprofit. It is an honor to be welcoming back my good friend, John Mitchell, to the show. John is a lawyer and a leader. He is the owner of HMG LLC, which is the parent company to KM Advisors, a boutique consultancy committed to helping lawyers discover their leadership potential so that they continuously develop themselves and their organizations in pursuit of changing the world. John specializes in working with lawyers in formal roles like general counsel, managing partners, practice group leaders, and committee chairs, and those in informal leadership roles. He also supports in-house lawyers transitioning to business roles, junior associates, new partners, major rainmakers, and senior lawyers considering their second season in life. John, it's an honor to have you back on the show. Thanks, Christina. It's my pleasure to be back. So in our last episode, we really laid the groundwork from your perspective as an executive coach as to the value of executive coaching, what it looks like, and how people can pick a coach. Now we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about ways in which executive coaching can really be beneficial to lawyers, particularly those who are in private practice, in terms of framing the way that they view themselves in the context of their practices and their law firms. So why don't we talk for a moment about the importance of especially private practice lawyers, but I think that the same is true across the different contexts in which lawyers can practice, why it's really important to see yourself as a business owner more than just as an employee of an organization? So everyone has a client if you're a lawyer, if you're a practicing lawyer, whether that client is you know, a third party, you know, a corporation or an individual that's hired you, or you're working in a corporation, your client's an internal client. And all of your clients are looking to you for more than just substantive legal answers. And they're really looking to you to be somebody who can help them solve a wide variety of problems and take advantage of a wide variety of opportunities so that they can be successful. They, the individual client, either external or internal client, not just the organization. And so this idea of an ownership mentality is really important because it means you're thinking about and looking at more than just how do I do my job correctly. So if I'm a you know, commercial litigator, It's not just, you know, have I issued discovery, you know, properly, or do I have the right e-discovery team set up here? It's doing all the things that make that client feel comfortable with you. It's thinking about how does my team, including all of our support staff, interact with the client's team? Are we doing this in a way that makes everybody feel good? Are we doing it in a way that's efficient? Are we doing it in a way that gets the best work product out and lets everybody be happy with, with what we're doing? So this idea of creating this ownership mentality is something that all of us have probably had somebody say to us early in our careers, damn it, you need to step up and take ownership for this. And they were talking about a specific matter. Ultimately, you want to take ownership for your own career and for all the work that you're doing 
And that ownership mentality is one of the best ways to successfully do that, where you think of yourself as, I am one of the owners, not because I'm literally an owner, like a partner of, of, of the law firm, because I think of myself as an owner. I operate like an owner. I do the things that an owner of a business does day in and day out. I don't just do the piece of work that was handed to me. And that's a sea change from how a lot of advisors and other service providers, not just lawyers, but other service providers as well, act. If you can act with that owner's mentality, you are going to attract clients, you're going to keep clients at a level that somebody who is 10 times smarter than you is never going to be able to do. Well, and that makes perfect sense. And I think it's that mentality that is critically important in terms of some of these topics that we're about to run through. And what I'd love to do is get your insight on each of these different, what I'd like to call buckets of a practice and metrics and ways to measure success for an attorney. I'd love to get your thoughts. Would love to hear the anecdotes from your many years of being an executive coach about ways in which you've seen some clients address these issues through the coaching process. So let's take the first topic, which is how to keep your clients happy. I'm sure our listeners would love to hear an anecdote about, you know, maybe an interesting story with one of your clients about some of the challenges that they may have had in keeping their clients happy and how they push through it. Sure. So one of the examples that I have is a lawyer who was a commercial litigator, had a series of matters for a very large company that were coming up repeatedly. This lawyer was managing all of the litigation, but not directly responsible for more than a couple pieces of it. So a variety of other partners also managing that work. And invariably, this lawyer had reached out to people that had time instead of reaching out to people who he thought were going to be the best people to interact with this client and some of this client's quirks. So as they got deeper and deeper into litigation, and the bills were flying fast and furiously, the client's blood pressure was getting higher and higher and higher. Because some of the partners who were managing pieces of litigation were incredibly responsive, very clear and concise communication so that the client always knew what was happening. In others, it was radio silence. And because the partner who was my client was managing a whole bunch of these folks, he wasn't paying particular attention to any of the individuals. He was just paying attention to whether or not the litigation appeared to be on track, not even so much whether the client was happy. So ultimately what happened is the client blew up, blew a gasket threat to start pulling work. Well, that's the worst. That's, exactly. that's the worst. And here's the thing. My client had been around long enough to know it would be impossible at this stage to pull all the work. So he actually got a little complacent. And so in one of our conversations, I said to him, the fact that he can't pull the work today doesn't mean he's not going to start cutting you off tomorrow from any new work. Right. So instead of getting complacent, do you see any value in figuring out what's up with him and how you might make this better. And ultimately, he decided that was exactly right. There was huge value to him in being able to retain a big client and not just have a really good year of billing. So he actually decided to call the client. Ultimately, the client said, come out for a meeting. And he jumped on a plane and actually had a a face-to-face meeting. And he got a litany of issues that the client was upset about. And he was very upset and very defensive about two-thirds of this list. So we were then debriefing after his meeting, and he was very upset because he felt like the client knew him well. He'd worked with him for years. Most of these issues weren't his issue. They were issues of these other lawyers, these other partners who were managing pieces of the litigation. Which he brought in, though. I mean, so at the end of the day, he's the relationship partner. The buck stops with him. And that was his challenge. So that was the piece of awareness he didn't have. 
he saw himself as a badass trial lawyer. And truth be told, he actually was. However, that's not the role he was playing for this client. He was playing litigation manager. So he was essentially an external you know, deputy general counsel for litigation. And that was the role he was playing. That was the role the client thought he was playing. And in that role, he was actually failing because he had some people who were high performers and other people who were low performers and other people who were in the middle. He wasn't trying to figure out how to move the low performers out and bring someone else in, how to move the middle performers up into the high performer category. And that was his big failure. So as he gained that awareness in our conversations, he started to do exactly that. He started to move some of those lower performers out as he could. They got lucky and settled cases too that, that helped in this process. And then he really focused on that middle group of the middle performers and said, how do I get them to be at this higher level? And he talked to some of his high performers. He talked to me. He talked to a few other people. And he got a bunch of ideas. And he just started to experiment, just like we talked about in the last you know, conversation. And as he experimented, he found things that worked. And some things that worked with one person didn't work with another. And that was okay. And eventually, he got to the point where it wasn't perfect. The client still was unhappy about certain things. However, the client made a point of saying, I see you doing the job now that I thought you were supposed to be doing. Thank you. Well, and I think that that's right, that it is the job that he was supposed to be doing. And I think it's sometimes the trickiest part of the job when you're managing a relationship with the client, because it's all about personalities meshing in addition to providing the substantive expertise that the client needs. And that's what we forget, again, as lawyers, is we always want to fall back to our substantive expertise. And you just, you know, we constantly say it, all the coaches say this, it's the ante to get into the game. If you don't have that, they're not even going to consider you for the job. But once you have that, it's other skills that become important. In this case, it was understanding that you were playing a different role. Your role was not to be trial lawyer. Your role was to manage a whole bunch of trial lawyers who are moving a whole bunch of contentious litigation all at the same time. Exactly. For this company. Exactly. So I think that's one of the biggest issues that I see about keeping clients happy is really, what's my role? And am I fulfilling that role? Right. And understanding that that role shifts from client to client. And oftentimes it depends on the size of the law department, the expertise of the people in the law department, and how they may be deployed on this matter and other matters that we may not even be working on at any given time. And that sort of thing shifts over time, depending on what's going on at the company. And that's why this is hard, because it's exactly right. It shifts. And so you can't just come up with a formula and say, well, when I have this type of company, I do X. When I have this type of company, I do Y. Exactly. It moves. You have to pay attention. So why don't we take a look at something else here now, which I think as Time has evolved. It's become much more important, especially since the last recession. And that is choosing your practice and your clients wisely. And oftentimes that discussion is had from an economics perspective. And I think that that discussion about making sure that your practice fits within the context of your firm and that the clients you choose fit well within that context as well. It's usually part of not just, you know, obviously there are conflicts issues and, you know, certain issues about whether there are certain types of companies we don't want to represent or we do want to represent, but a lot of it has to do with the economic conversation. Do you have any interesting anecdotes about how you've coached your clients to say, you know, maybe that 
client you've been representing for many years because of where you are in your career, where your firm is, and you, the firm that you've chosen to stay at, maybe you shouldn't be working with that client anymore. Do you have any interesting stories you'd like to share? Yeah, I do. I have two um, that come to mind just immediately because they are both, I think, the cautionary tale. In one case, the person is a commercial litigator. He's a managing partner of an office for a large law firm. And he has been very successful in business development and yet consistently complains to me in some of our meetings about a particular client. And it's a sizable client for him. It's about a million dollars a year. And this client drives him absolutely crazy. And as he's discussed the client, discussed the behaviors, it's become very clear to me that he came out of a firm that was very entrepreneurial, took almost anything that came along, was willing to see if it panned out or not. If it did, they ran with it. If it didn't, they just fired the client and moved on. Now he's an institutional firm, and they don't have that same attitude. Once the client's in the door, unless they get really far behind the bills, they're not going to get rid of that client. Yet this client's behavior was inconsistent with the, the values and the ethics, frankly, of this institutional lawyer in this big institutional firm. And so ultimately, he had to make a hard choice and decide he was going to fire the client. And what he did to make that a little more stomach palatable to himself is he really started to focus on developing some new business so that as he moved away from this client, he wasn't just like going to have a million dollar hole in his book of business. He was going to be slowly but surely replacing it so it wasn't quite as painful. And the second quick anecdote is a lawyer who does employment law, management side employment law. And she has these group of clients who absolutely love her. And she tells them these amazing stories about these clients. And then occasionally there's a story about two or three clients who are abusive, verbally abusive. Oh, my goodness. And they are very, very inappropriate with their time. And they are also abusive when it comes to billing. And they know that as one of the few senior women in her firm, that she's a little bit vulnerable. And so I think because of that, they play a game with billing with bills that come in and they delay them and they argue about them in a way that they don't and her other clients don't for any other bills. Wow. And this is one of those things where I finally said, have you ever mentioned this to your therapist? This is somebody who had been in therapy, had told me she had worked with a therapist. And there was a silence on the phone. And then I heard this very soft voice say, no, do you think I should? I said, yes, I'm asking you to take this to your therapist comes back in the next conversation and says, yeah, my therapist said that this is reflecting something that was some abusive behavior that I tolerated at the earlier part of my life. So I said, therapeutic issue, I'm not the right guy to help you with that. Let's keep that with a therapist. And the therapist said, hey, coach, thanks, because that's something I didn't know was going on in her business life, and I can help her with that. Very interesting. So those are places where the economics seems like it's going to be a really, really big deal. And it's the other stuff that frankly trumps economics in the end. Yeah. And, you know, there's obviously other factors that go into the conversation when you have a client as an executive coach who's telling you, I have an abusive client or the economics or the framework within which our client has historically enabled, has allowed us to build just has not continued to evolve as the economics of the firm have evolved. There's obviously, it's a process. It's realizing reality for what it is. And then it's also figuring out the best way to release that relationship in a way where you're not torching a potential 
personal relationship that goes with it, as well as a potential referral source that can run both ways. And that's a very good point. And one of the things that, again, a lot of lawyers don't like to do is have a broad network of people who can do what they do and do it differently. So as an example, if you're a commercial litigator in a very large global firm, you have a very, very high billing rate by today's standards compared to all the other commercial litigators in the United States. And so you need to have people who, they don't have to be your friends, but people who you know and trust their work that are at different price points so that if your client is no longer appropriate for your firm's billing structure, to your point, Tina, you want to keep the relationship, you want to keep the possibility of getting referrals when it is appropriate. You can't just say, you know, we've outgrown you, sorry, goodbye. What you want to be able to do is say, we can no longer provide the services that you seek at the price that is working for you. So there's a little bit of a value conflict there. What I think we need to do is sit down and let's talk about some people that I think could be a really good fit for where your business is today. Help them make that transition so that they end up paying what they feel is fair and getting the quality of work that they're used to that you've done for them and understanding why you've had to make this decision and feeling good about you. And feeling like you did what was in their best interest. And when that project comes along, either for themselves or for somebody who may be in their network that is more in the bailiwick of what you provide to clients, they will think of you rather than running to another firm. In fact, you'll be one of the most memorable lawyers they know because it's rare that I've had a client tell me, I just had a lawyer do something that was so clear it was in my best interest, not in the lawyer's best interest. So unfortunately, that happens to be rare in our profession. So when it happens, people notice. So when you put the client's interest clearly ahead of your own, like in this case, giving up the work, but not just dumping the client, helping them find the right person to then take on that work, the client gets it. You are putting their interests far above your own. And that matters. They remember that in a positive way. Well, that's great. So why don't we switch gears for a moment and talk about another area that I'm sure you've worked with a lot of clients on, and that is helping them build their business profile and their brand. Yet another set of skills and another differentiator that has become a lot more meaningful in the past five to 10 years. Do you want to talk about for a moment how you work with clients to help them build their business profile and brand? Sure. And this is going to sound a little bit crazy for a coach to say this. One of the things I say to them is, Get out and start doing some research. See who's big in your area of expertise. Not who you think is big. See who the public thinks is big, who prospective clients think is a big name. There's this whole concept out there today, this idea about being a visible expert. And there's consultancies that can help you do that, learn how to be that visible expert. And I actually tell people, go out and start looking at that stuff first. So you see what's happening. You see the various ways you might become this visible expert raising your profile, developing that brand. And, and then let's talk about where you see challenges. So for instance, working with a firm that has a very, very narrow practice and very, very, let's just say skittish about anything with social media. And we were talking many years ago about blogs and that that would be a way for them to raise their profile more broadly. So they were known very, very well by a small set of the marketplace, but they weren't known at all by a much bigger piece of the marketplace. And they really felt, the managing partner in particular, felt that blogging was just a 
ethically untenable. There was no way to do it inside the ethical rules. And so I asked him to do two things. Number one, put aside that belief for a moment, have some conversations with me about what his concerns might be beyond the ethics. It turned out there was a lot. And he was just afraid they were going to start looking like, you know, lawyers who were chasing ambulance, even though they had nothing to do with, you know, that type of work. And then the second thing I said to him was, and why don't you go get an independent opinion, not from your firm general counsel, but from somebody else in another firm on this issue? And so those two things helped him process this differently. And in the end, they decided not only were they going to start looking at blogs as a way to raise profile, they were going to look at a number of other things, including doing things like podcasts like you and I are doing today, getting more of their attorneys out speaking instead of just getting their biggest names who were often listed in chambers, they were actually trying to get people who were more junior out there speaking so that their firm brand really showed people from nationally known experts to up-and-comers who were going to grow with you know, their counterparts in in-house legal departments. So by the time they were decision makers, they'd already see these people as the experts in the industry. And so those are some of the things that as a coach I end up doing. I don't end up helping them learn how to use Twitter. I don't end up helping them learn how to use LinkedIn. I send them to other sources to do those things, and those are very valuable tools, by the way. I help them try to figure out what's stopping me from wanting to do this, because usually it's not, I don't know how to use LinkedIn. It's, I think there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. So we explore what's wrong, and if they can solve for what's wrong, now they're much more open to try to pursue raising their profile and doing something more than simply being a practicing lawyer, because that's a part of it, too. If I look at someone like you, Tina, as you said, I've known you for 25 years. You've never been shy about trying to be involved in lots of things and trying to make a difference in the profession on a lot of different levels. There's other lawyers, though, who feel like this is a profession and it's my sole job to practice law, not do anything else, not contribute anyplace else. Doesn't that sound boring? <laughs> Personally, I would have fallen asleep 25 years ago and never woken up again. <laughs> you and me both. You're one of the exceptions. You're not the rule. And that's why this stuff can be challenging. And so that's why as a coach, I don't spend much of my time trying to help them figure out the nuts and bolts of how to do these things. There's consultants who I think are better at that than I'll ever be. I try to spend my time helping them think about, so what's blocking you? If you knew this, and, and here's the question I always ask, if you could only do one type of legal work, and it was going to be 90% of the hours that you spent you know, billing work in a given week what would that be? And I get them to define that with a lot of specificity. And I say, how much of that do you have right now? Never close to 90%, probably some fraction. If you knew that you could develop this brand, this awareness in the public's perception, that you're one of the go-tos for that particular substantive area, and that was going to get you closer to 90% of that work in your average week, would that have meaning for you? Would that have value for you? And of course, they're saying, yes, yes, of course, yes, yes, yes. Boom. Now they're starting to solve whatever that, that resistance was about using some of these techniques, whether it's speaking or writing or social media or whatever it was. We all have excuses for all of these different things. You can use one or you can use them all. And really, in today's environment, in the you know, fast internet age, really go from no one knowing who you are to being a national or internationally known figure in less than four or five years. And nationally, you can do it in a couple of years. Which is pretty remarkable. I mean, and it is remarkable when you think about it, because when we first started practicing law, none of this existed. The internet didn't exist. And so your ability to really develop your reputation, a lot of it was word of mouth or speaking at conferences, 
doing a lot of lunches and dinners. And I think the advent of the internet and social media has really changed the game there. And I think one of the things that I would just encourage our listeners to think about is it isn't about being on social media for social media's sake. It's about really figuring out who you are authentically, how you are different from other people, and how you can get your message out in a way that stands out from everybody else. Because everyone's using social media. And after a while, people get social media fatigue, and it makes it difficult for people to really notice anything in particular if everybody is saying and looking the same way. So John, our time together is almost up. And I think that it would make sense for us to end our conversation talking for a minute about the importance of working with your clients as an executive coach in creating a mindfulness about the importance of a network and developing partnerships, some of which may be the standard types of partnerships and relationships that lawyers like me develop, but also thinking out of the box and thinking about the importance of looking to other ways to create partnerships, to proliferate revenue, and to develop a client base. Do you want to share with us for a moment just some of the advice you may give to your clients about how to go about doing that? Sure. One of the things that I always assume is that my clients don't have enough hours in the day, that they're just too busy. And so they always will agree with me if I say, so is that where you're at? Yes, yes, it is. So then we start having a conversation about, well, how could you get more leverage? And not just leverage for billing purposes, but how do you get more leverage so you have more impact? And oftentimes, that'll get them thinking as, about a particular client and what that client might need, what would add value in that client's life. And it's something that has nothing to do with a legal solution. So then I ask them, so does that mean you're stuck? You can't add more value in that client's life because the next great value add has nothing to do with the law? Yeah, I guess I am. Is there any way you could? And then they start thinking, and sure enough, that he said, well, you know something? Yes, if we had a really good relationship with that HR consulting firm, and I could help my client with that HR consulting firm, and that's one of their big issues is HR stuff. Yeah, that would be valuable. Okay. And so on and so forth. So you start looking at these partnerships and getting people to realize that if you can get to a one plus one equals three situation, even if you're not making money from it, you're adding tremendous goodwill with the client. And that's invaluable. And then once you get your, my clients, my lawyers, thinking about that, I then push them to think outside the box a little bit farther. Don't just think about what are other businesses that might add value to the clients, particularly your client organizations that you deal with. What are the other types of people that might add value to the human being that is your client? So here's a really great example of this that I had a client right here in Chicago do. He realized, this lawyer realized his client's son was becoming a very good little, little league baseball pitcher. And he had, his own son had been played baseball, and he realized that you know a lot of kids hurt their arms. So it turned out that there was a former Chicago White Sox pitcher who had developed a camp that was specifically designed to help young baseball players learn how to throw without throwing out their arm. He made a recommendation to this client that you know, he go look at that for his son. Long story short, that's exactly what happened. The son did not go on to play baseball, you know, as a professional. However, he had a really good career. He never hurt himself. He went off to do other things in college and his father felt this this great sense of gratitude to my client because my client had found a solution for him that had a huge value in his life, seeing his son be happy and successful at something. And that was thinking outside the box for that lawyer. That's awesome. That is a great story. 
Well, John, unfortunately, our time is up. This has been amazing. And as I mentioned in our last episode, I continue to learn so much from you. Do you have any final thoughts you'd care to share before we sign off? Well, I just think that this idea of really trying to find out how you can add value in your clients, in your prospective clients' lives, can be a fun game to play. I try to think about whenever I know somebody's not going to hire me, is there something I can still do to add value in their life once I've made, you know, met them, had a little bit of an introduction? I don't always pull it off, but I try. I try to turn it into a game for myself, to challenge myself. And what that does, Tina, is it constantly has me thinking about not how do I make more money from this relationship, how do I add more value from this relationship? And invariably, good stuff happens to me because of that. That's awesome. So, John, where can our listeners find you? So three quick and easy places. As you said, social media is not everything. So I'm on Twitter, not because I'm a big tweeting person, but because I had a spoken word poet as a client who did everything on Twitter <laughs> and said, damn it, if you're not on Twitter, you can't be my coach. That's So hilarious. I do tweet occasionally. I also have a LinkedIn account. So you can find John Mitchell on LinkedIn. And then the easiest way is Purple Coach, my email address, purplecoach at kmadvisors.com. And I'll be happy to respond to anybody that wants to reach out. Awesome, John. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And I look forward to partnering with you again very soon. Thanks, Tina. It's been my real pleasure. And thank you all for joining us for this episode of Paradigm Shift. I hope that you've enjoyed laying the groundwork about executive coaching and why it is important for lawyers. In our next episode, we will begin to explore the topic of young lawyers, talent management, and the future of the legal profession. We hope that you will join us. I'm your host, Christina Martini. Please look for our weekly episodes every Tuesday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit us at www.paradigmshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.